It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on the latest updates from the ground in Ukraine, and on the 37th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, we look back and discuss its impact on contemporary Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday. The 26th of April, one year and 61 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and our guest is friend of the pod, Val Voshevska. She's a campaign manager for the Ukraine Solidarity Project and presenter on the Ukrainian Spaces podcast. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hello, everybody. Let's let's start with Bakhmut, so the blasted eastern Donbass city. So there's been a really interesting interview with the commander of the eastern group of the armed forces of Ukraine. So this is Colonel General Oleksandr Sursky. We've quoted him a number of times recently. He's been very prominent in the media. But he gave a great interview to Interfax Ukraine, which is worth a look, but some bits specifically on Bakhmut. He was asked why they've been fighting. Obviously, we've been talking about this for many months now. It's come at great cost to Ukraine, but arguably much bigger cost to Russia. But not to steal his thunder, he said that for the months of the fighting, he said, we have been holding back the enemy's offensive and preventing them from expanding their front line. He said they've inflicted significant losses on Russia by destroying their most professional units, weapons and military equipment. That's as we were, as we thought. But he then went on about why the defence was important as well, an area we've not really had a huge amount of detail on from the Ukrainian perspective. 
He said the maintenance of the defence there ensures the sustainability of the defence of the Eastern Group of Forces as a whole. And he said Bakhmut is a well-located natural fortress surrounded by rivers situated on hills, so it's good for defence. It's got a lot of multi-storey buildings, developed infrastructure, so it can be certainly not easy to hold, but it can be a very, very difficult nut to crack. And he said that holding Bakhmut prevents Russia from reaching the flank and rear of our troops in the Lysychansk and Donetsk sectors. So a bit more detail there about why... Uh, so not just we thought. And I still do think that the weight of their purpose there, Ukrainian forces, is to is to work on the relative strengths argument, as in to wear down Russia, prevent them going elsewhere. Of course, that's good, but also, but also start writing them down. They're all about write their equipment down, as in destroy it, in anticipation of the of not only Ukraine's counteroffensive, but obviously it means that uh, those native equipment and those units can't be used elsewhere. But interesting detail there about the defence. But let's stick on Bakhmut and look at today's British defence intelligence output. They've said that fighting is now on the outskirts of the town. Ukrainian forces are prioritising their hold of the 506 road, which kind of runs northwest and then west out of Bakhmut. It's the key supply route. The other routes are, UKDI say, they're complicated by muddy conditions on unsurfaced tracks. And we know that they are under a huge amount of fire from Russia. The MOD go on. A key development over the last week has been fighting on the outskirts of the town, especially near the village of Kromove, as Ukraine seeks to maintain control of the 506. And Ukraine's other resupply routes, there we go, are covered by covered by fire and not easily passable. And they finish with the town having now been under attack for over 11 months. The Ukrainian defences of Bakhmut have been integrated as one element of a much deeper defensive zone, which includes the town of Chasiv Yar to the west. That's about 10 k's to the west. So a bit more detail than we'd heard before about quite where Bakhmut fits into that defence and what might be what might be backing it up. So staying with the MOD, they've also been saying in recent uh, in the last couple of days how they've noticed how Russian casualties have dropped by almost a third, and they're saying this is because Moscow they've scaled back their attacks because they failed, and also because they're trying to preserve what they can for the anticipated counteroffensive. And they've so they've done an analysis of figures published by Ukraine's general staff that shows the daily number of Russian casualties, casualty being killed wounded, missing, or taken prisoner. So not just dead, but all of those four things will take you off the battlefield. The number of Russian casualties has dropped from an average of 776 a day in March to 568 a day this month. No cause for celebration there from Russia at all. If you are having 568 of your troops taken out of action on a daily basis, that is an extraordinarily high figure, not just in, in terms of what it does for the overall manpower but just think about organizationally systemically what losing those chunks every day will do and the need to reorganize and amalgamate units together and all that organizational faff which anyone who's ever tried to organize a blooming christmas party will know the drama involved with organizational foos anyway the uk mod go on russia's losses have likely highly likely reduced as their attempted winter offensive offensives have failed to achieve the objectives and Russian forces are now focused on preparing for anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive ops. So very interesting to see there, bearing in mind that Wagner have claimed victory over Bakhmut for 
I can remember at least four times, but yeah, they ain't there yet. Comes at great cost. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's still a real fight there in Bakhmut. I'm just going to finish on on the cheery note of Anthrax, but Joe Barnes has been writing. I think it'll be out tomorrow, but he's written a piece on Russian troops who have reportedly contracted Anthrax after breaking open a cattle burial site in a bid a bid to dig defensive trenches in the Zaporizhia region. And he talks about a unit that was ordered uh, into immediate quarantine after doctors confirmed um, anthrax, a highly infectious disease. And this came from Ivan Fedorov, who's the exiled Ukrainian mayor of Melitopol. He put it on Telegram. And uh, he wrote, the enemy unit is now in quarantine. Two Russian servicemen were first brought to Melitopol Hospital, but but after the diagnosis was confirmed, they were quickly discharged and taken to an unknown destination. Anthrax is a nasty bacterial infection spread via infected animal carcasses and food. Really nasty symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, blood. You don't want to, you don't want anthrax. But as Joe says, it's not the first time Russian troops have fallen victims to dangerous dormant materials, as he puts it. Early on in this phase of the war, they disturbed the, a lot of radioactive dust in the, in the area of the uh, Chernobyl nuclear plant when def- uh, preparing defensive positions. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that, I think, later on from Val. Thanks. Thanks, Dom. Francis, there's an awful lot of diplomatic updates to get through. There's one incredibly important one that's just come in. Can you talk us through what we've learned in the last half an hour? Yes, thank you, David. It has finally happened. So the breaking story you just referred to is that President Xi of China has called President Zelensky as he promised before his meeting with Putin in Moscow several weeks ago. Who knows, perhaps our constantly banging on about it has finally chivied Xi into action. But it's very important, this. And Zelensky has put out a tweet, as you say, only very recently. He said, I had a long and meaningful phone call with President Xi Jinping. I believe that this call, as well as the appointment of Ukraine's ambassador to China, will give a powerful impetus to the development of our bilateral relations. So we haven't heard anything more than that. As you say, it's a breaking story, but really important this. And it has been a significant 24 hours on the question of China. The big story here from the UK in the last 24 hours, and one that will have implications for the wider Western approach to emerging threats is a major speech by Foreign Secretary James Cleverly on China. Now, it was a long and nuanced speech, so summarising its essence is a bit of a challenge, but fundamentally it combines elements of hawkishness and realpolitik, though I would say it leans more towards the latter than the former. So to try and summarise what was, as I say, a lengthy pitch on the British position. So Cleverly is it starts really by urging China to come clean about its biggest military buildup in peacetime and warned of the risks of a Cold War with Beijing. He warned of the dangers of a tragic miscalculation in the Indo-Pacific if China's aggression continues and urged China to be equally open about the doctrine and intent behind its military expansion because transparency is surely in everyone's interests and secrecy can only increase the risk of tragic miscalculation. However, crucially, cleverly argued that Britain must continue to engage with China despite any revulsion, his word. It might reveal at the gulags being set up in certain regions. And he really articulates in detail why he believes this. He said it would be clear and easy, perhaps even satisfying for me to declare a new Cold War and to say that our goal is to isolate China. Clear, easy, satisfying and wrong. 
because it would be a betrayal of our national interest and a willful misunderstanding of the modern world. And in terms of setting out the importance of the engagement with China, he says that no significant global problem from climate change to pandemic prevention, from economic stability to nuclear proliferation can be solved without China. To give up on China would be to give up on addressing humanity's biggest problems. A lot to unpack here. He did acknowledge that the rise of China as the premier economic power wasn't inevitable. I thought that was interesting, citing its declining and aging population. And he also cited specific examples of where engagement with China has helped Western interests. And I'll quote in full, British position as a founding member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank has allowed us to influence China's approach towards this new institution, preventing it from becoming a politicized extension of the Belt and Road Initiative. China is the biggest shareholder of the bank is headquartered in Beijing. And yet, within a week of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it froze every single project in Russia. Again, trying to emphasize that by engaging with China, he believes that there can be influence on the Chinese foreign policy position. Of course, similar arguments were made with regard to Russia prior to the invasion of Ukraine. But of course, China is a very different beast. That has to be acknowledged to Russia. It is a hugely important global economic powerhouse as well as an expanding military one. But I do think it's important to underline here that this is being greeted by consternation amongst some quarters. We published a piece from Matthew Henderson last night and it's in the paper today, an associate fellow at the Council on Geostrategy. And he articulates, I think, the frustration in certain more hawkish quarters about this speech. So he says it suggests that the British government has learned nothing from the litany of Chinese Communist Party lies and and abuses espoused during the pandemic, from the fate of Tibet, Inner Mongolia, Hong Kong, from China's crude imperialist ambitions to annex Taiwan, a de facto sovereign democracy, and from their crucial economic support for Putin and its atrocities in Ukraine. He goes on, the same disconnection from reality informs the notion that solving global global warming requires cooperation with Beijing. She is heavily dependent on coal. His idea of cleaner energy involves geostrategic quantities of imported oil and gas from Russia and Iran. With Xi in power, the chances of a serious reduction in China's emissions seem slim. The British government also is keen to emphasize the importance of working China to prevent future pandemics. Yet when the COVID outbreak started, the Chinese Communist Party deliberately ignored its obligations under the international health regulations, misleading the World Health Organization about the facts of human to human and transmission long enough for the virus to spread around the globe. The Communist Party still refuses to share vital COVID data, and there is every chance that the next pandemic will originate in China, given its size, and the CCP will again try to cover it up. So I think that gets the measure of some of the reaction on this. Others are saying that this is a sensible approach according to the principles of realpolitik, but I do think it's important to register some of the controversy around this, David, but one that's very important. Now, just a a few other short updates, very quick. I know we'll cover this probably a little bit more in detail later in the week. Macron's chief top advisor on security, Danilov, has said, really very strongly criticised the Macron approach on the issue of China and in terms of trying to facilitate some kind of important negotiation. He said that Macron must be permitted to give away Bordeaux if he wants to negotiate on Ukraine's behalf. This idea of 
Ukraine being forced to give away Crimea would mean that other countries should be forced or were willing to give away some of their territory, just to trying to underline the fundamental nature of Crimea in all of this. No great surprises, but it does underline, I think, that those of a more realist position are being are really asking Ukraine to consider something which is really egregious to them. And I think that can, at that point can only be drilled home because it's not being made enough, I don't think, in, in mainstream media and understanding of Crimea. Just last couple of updates, 10 Norwegian diplomats have been expelled from an embassy in Moscow, been demanded to leave the country, according to Norway's foreign minister. This was obviously yet a further example of the retaliatory measures following Russian embassy officials being accused of intelligence, operating as intelligence officers under the cover of diplomatic positions being forced to leave Norway. So this is not uncommon. We've seen numerous examples of this happening, including in Germany, but nonetheless significant of further severance between Western ties with Russia, Western engagement with Russia and vice versa. And just lastly, I mentioned Zelensky's breaking remarks earlier about the conversations with President Xi. Also, organized and given some remarks about the significant anniversary of Chernobyl today. So he says that the world must give no chance to the terrorist state, of course, being Russia, to use nuclear power facilities to blackmail Ukraine and the entire world. He's writing on Telegram. He said, 37 years ago, the Chernobyl accident left a huge scar on the whole world. The radiation leak turned a once cozy and developed area in Ukraine, of course, important to emphasize, into an exclusion zone. Today, the 30 kilometer zone around the nuclear power plant remains a dangerous place with a high concentration of radiation. Last year, the occupier not only seized the power plants, but also endangered the entire world again. It's been more than a year after liberation already. Scientific and security enterprises in the Chernobyl zone have already returned to normal operation. Ukraine and the world have a paid high price for the liquidation of the consequences of the disaster, which continues to this day. We must do everything to give no chance to Russia to use nuclear power facilities to blackmail Ukraine and the world. Now, we've talked a lot about Zaporizhia in the past and things have stabilized there. But this does, I think, just underline a point which is integral to Ukraine, which is appealing to the danger of Putin having control of power plants like Zaporizhia and the bargaining chip that it seems to give him. But that's the lay of the land, David, in the diplomatic space. There are a few others that I'd like to do at the end, but those are the biggies. Thank you very much, Francis. In 1986, the number four RBMK reactor at the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl exploded. The resulting disaster spread radiation across Europe, displaced hundreds of thousands of people, and proved catastrophic for the standing of the Soviet authorities in Moscow. Today is the 37th anniversary of the catastrophe, and it's great to welcome back to the podcast Val Voschewska. Val, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to bring you on and talk to you a little bit just about your life growing up in Ukraine, and just to get a sense from you of how Chernobyl was seen and understood by people growing up in the 90s. Where would you like to start? Thank you so much, first of all, for having me back with you. It's great to be able to speak again with your audience and with all of you as well here. Just in terms of Chernobyl, I think every single Ukrainian will have memories about some sort of family story connected with Chernobyl, where their families were, what happened. And I think most of these stories highlight just how much Moscow made an effort to not tell people what was happening in the first couple of days of the disaster. So I'm too young, basically, to have memories about what happened on the 26th of April and in the weeks following that myself. But I actually, before 
coming onto the podcast, spoke to my father, who at the time, 1986, was working at a factory actually that produced rubber. It was one of the biggest factories that that produced latex and things like that in Kiev. And they were actually involved in trying to create some sort of a cover for the reactor, because obviously a lot of the radioactive, I don't know what it's called, but some of the radioactive particles were being out of the reactor. So they were early on aware of what was going on. But he said, even though they were a little bit more aware, they still were not aware about what was happening in Chernobyl all the way until potentially five, six days after the actual tragedy happened. So he remembers that on the 1st of May, so that's in still a few days, basically, from when everything happened, he remembers going to the big demonstrations in on Kreshatik, the central street in Kiev. First of May is, I think, yeah, International Workers' Day, and it was a massive deal for the Soviet Union. And he remembers all of the workers from his factory, from other places, walking down the street, parading, celebrating International Workers' Day. And essentially, he remembers, and this will, I don't know, he told me today, and I just couldn't believe it, but he was walking with a friend of his and his friend had two small kids with him. And the kids all of a sudden got both of them, two kids got a nosebleed (laughs) as they were walking down and they didn't quite know what was happening. But he also said that he remembers that usually they just march down quietly down the central street, like at their own pace. But on the 1st of May, they, for some reason, the organizers started telling the crowds to start moving faster and my dad just has this memory on the 1st of May, there being this massive panic during this march down the central street where people just started not walking as they usually did, but running. And after the 1st of May, actually the massive panic in Kiev and all around the area that's close to Chernobyl just kicked off with officials, cars in Burisbil Airport. Clearly people were trying to escape and fly away. And it, it he just remembers as that was like the first kind of time that it really kicked off and people started panicking. That's how I, from from childhood, remember as well. My cousin was born in 1986, so exactly the year of when the disaster happened. And I just remember family members say, telling me stories how they had to evacuate him to Kherson and how much of a kind of massive deal it was because he was like a couple of months old and they just tried to get him as further away as it was possible. So... Basically, every single Ukrainian found out about and knew about what was happening in Chernobyl and what happened in Chernobyl through personal stories, because our families were all, especially those from Kiev, those from the areas around, were all personally affected by this in the immediate kind of couple of days after everything happened. Yeah, that's where I'd start from, David. That's an astonishing family story. Thank you very much, Val, for sharing it. Could I ask you to talk a little bit more about the impact of the disaster on the Soviet state. You said early on in the disaster, the state for many weeks wasn't communicating what was happening and people did not know and they did things which they should not have been doing. And then come the evacuations. Is it the first bit of the sort of dominoes which is falling of the authority of the Soviet state with the disaster and the fallout to the disaster? Yeah, absolutely. And we will need to verify these numbers from me because this is just at the top of my head. But this was, as you say, one of the kind of big dominoes that when it fell, people were like, okay, we do not trust this government if they're not telling us things that are so crucial for our well-being. And then a couple of years later, what was it, referendum 1991, when Ukraine voted on independence and 90 plus percent of people said we're out and we don't want to be controlled by Moscow. Moscow cheated us, essentially. And 
I think also I was thinking about this before coming here, but you know how Ukrainians for a very long time, which we try to explain to the world that we have this sense of injustice within us that is really hard to explain. And I think Chernobyl and the reaction of Moscow and the actions that followed that have all contributed to that. Because again, Ukraine, this is probably maybe too much to say, Ukraine acted again as a sort of buffer for all the radiation that Europe could have experienced and Europe could have received from this massive disaster that was mismanaged, as we now know, as you've all seen in probably TV shows and books and everything written. So, David, 100% that this was one of the last drops in the solution of the trust of Ukrainian towards the government in Moscow. Val, when you were growing up, you talked about families, people have family stories. Was it represented much in the media? Is there a lot of media, books, TVs, films, film series about the disaster? Or do, do people, maybe we have seen the Chernobyl drama series that came out a few years ago. I think it's really excellent. That's obviously English language speaking. But how is it represented in Ukrainian media? That's quite interesting. I remember being extremely affected by this movie that I saw, and I'm not going to remember the name right now. I'll remember it and tweet about it later. But there was a movie that came out, I think, in Ukrainian and in Russian when I was a teenager, like I think maybe I was like 13, 14. And it was about kids who were affected by the radiation. So kids who were actually kids when everything happened. And it was a movie about this young girl who I think as a result, because of the radiation, ended up having cancer and things like that. And a lot of kids, I think, were taken to be treated abroad after. And I just remember it was like the first time I was like, really shocked by the sheer like human suffering that people experience. And I think that goes to show that, <laughs> to answer your question, that yes, there was coverage, but there probably wasn't as much coverage, as much media, as much stories about this as there probably should have been, because we were still trying to fight uh, back against, you obviously know, the, the whole Russia still trying to control us. And it's quite embarrassing, I guess, for Moscow to admit that they messed up so unbelievably and had an impact on people's lives for generations to come. So probably not as much as there should have been. But I hope that, um, and we've seen with presidents as well, talking about this, that Francis was saying that it's just been more and more, we'll know more and more how this impacted people personally, because it's just so important to show how it's actually just a good example of the injustice that people had to suffer under the Soviet rule. What did it feel like, given your family history and your family stories, to see Russian troops moving through the Chernobyl region at the beginning of the full-scale invasion and occupying it for a while last year? What did you think of when you saw those images? So my dad actually was, I think he worked as part of one of his university placements in Pripyat before anything happened in Chernobyl. And he just would tell me all these stories about the forest that's around the actual nuclear power plant. And he said that it was like this beautiful forest on the border with Belarus. And there was loads of, yeah, it, the perfect place if you were to hide, if you were to build trenches, that would be a really good place to do that in. And at that point, obviously, we didn't know that Russia's first couple of days of invading Ukraine would be total shambles. And they were, as we've seen now, not very successful with those first couple of days and taking Kiev and all these things. But I think what happened in Chernobyl and the fact that they were just not thinking about what they were doing and digging trenches in areas of the forest that were super radioactive still, Ukraine still puts a lot of effort and money into monitoring the situation with radiation in that area, 
that it just shows the fact that they were so unprepared. They didn't even think about the fact that if we were to dig out soil in a in an area that was so close to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, then maybe we would get radiation as well. And obviously, we're never probably never going to find out what actually happened to the people who were there in the beginning. But I just remember watching it. And it was obviously one of the first places that was occupied. I was looking on the map just now. It's obviously so close to the border with Belarus. It was like the first place I think that people saw Russian troops as well arriving back in February 2022. So I think it was expected that would be one of the first things that they would try to take. The whole thing was unexpected in general, but it was expected that they would try and do something around there. But as we started finding out that they were digging trenches and doing all sorts of things, it just I think it's just so indicative of just how much of a mess that whole operation was. Just one more question from me, Val. When you were talking to your father this morning, how did he talk about it? No, we're 20, sorry, 37 years on. When he looks back, what did you get a sense of? I mean, did he feel proud about what he did? Does he remember it as this awful thing that he was very happy to escape from? What did you sense about his telling of the story? I realized that, and this is a message to everyone, ask your family members more about the stories from their lives because there's so much in them that you forget about and don't realize that I think it's just so important to keep asking. But I think I... I think what he always remembers more about his time in Pripyat before the disaster happened and about how beautiful of a region it was, how beautiful of a place it was. And to me, that just shows that he still probably feels quite strongly about the fact that anyone let this happen and get out of control, because that just comparison of and Ukraine is obviously naturally just a super beautiful country with a lot of beautiful nature. And I think he probably feels Moscow has a big part to play in what happened there and in the actions as well. And I think, again, to be completely honest, he was the first one today in the morning who was like, and that was the first, not the first, but the big thing that made Ukrainians really push back away from Moscow, basically trusting Moscow to control, to take care, take care in inverted commas, of their lives. And uh, yeah, I just think we forget about this, but just thinking of Chernobyl disaster in the context of just in general, the way that the Soviet Union disregarded people's lives and cared about their kind of standing more than anything is super important. Thanks so much, Val. Dom or Francis, do you have any questions? Yeah, sure. thanks. I'm laughing. Sorry, Val. Hi, it's great to have you here again. I'm laughing because you've literally just answered the question I was going to ask, which was, how is it feeding through to the to the, the culture today? I just wondered, I wonder if in this country, a major disaster like that would be received today, if those that, that were either very young at the time were not born, as a distrust in all of authority. But you seem to have suggested that actually, no, it's very well directed back at the Soviet Union. So I suppose if I, just having to take that on, because you've already answered that one, how much of that disgruntlement at the Soviet authorities do you think has fed through and has stuck because of Chernobyl with today's generation and their attitude to Russia? Thanks. Yeah, of course. Simple answer is, I think it has had a major effect on the way that people today as well their relationship today with Russia and Moscow and the Kremlin and things like that. The other thing to say is obviously that for a lot of Ukrainians, Soviet Union is sort of anonymous with Moscow regime and Russia, even up until today. I think 
so the one thing that I shared earlier from that my dad said, I didn't know this, but he shared it with me today. And I was like, oh, that that's pretty crazy. But the fact that people were seeing, lo- there was news from people that all these government officials that were in Kiev at the time were basically driving in their fancy cars to the airport to get out of Kiev before anyone was able to do that. And I think those kind of really personal things that people started feeling like that injustice became much more personal than it was before I think really had an impact and carried through until today and the other thing is it's personal stories that make us really understand the relationship that Moscow had with I don't want to call us the peripheries the countries that were further away from it and the reaction that the Kremlin see I'm even using the different words but the Soviet center in Moscow had to how they manage this. I think we all know that that was a terrible disaster and really showed that human lives were not what they really cared about. And also sending people out onto the central street a couple of days after it happened to go on a march to celebrate workers' rights is just insane. Thanks, Val. This is so interesting. I hadn't quite appreciated the domino effect that you described there. I think just contextualizing the disaster a bit for listeners, I've just been looking up in my notes and extraordinary. I mean, only 5% of the reactor's radioactive materials were released, but that only that 5% equated to 400 times more radiation than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It just speaks to the huge scale of this disaster and what with only five percent leaked so I just wanted to mention that but it, it got me thinking what you were saying there it reminded me something of that the historian Niall Ferguson pointed out which is that in a surveillance state everyone gets used to lying but when everyone lies you get disasters like Chernobyl it's sort of systematic lying and how that filters through and corrodes totalitarian systems. And that obviously should be a, a positive if we're looking at the war more broadly, is that we've said this many times, but autocracies look very strong and that's the facade they put out. But they're often creaking underneath and it doesn't take much to kick the door in and the whole thing comes crumbling down. So I think that's a sort of positive here. And I suppose what I was going to ask, Val, is... What other instances are there, if Chernobyl was one of the big dominoes, to use your term, what others are there that really got us to the point that the Soviet Union was brought down and also the anger generally towards Russia, perhaps by the before Chernobyl or immediately afterwards? I'm just interested in other historical examples that people point to in Ukraine as why the Soviet Union was bad and why the Russian state is not someone you want to be dealing with. Francis, you're really testing my history here, but let me try. I'm actually... Fun fact, taking Ukrainian history classes as of last week to refresh my memory a little bit about Ukrainian history more broadly and learn it again through a slightly different lens to maybe that the one that I would have when I was in school. But I think I'm going to say the obvious stuff, right? All the stuff that was happening in 1989 in countries bordering Ukraine and all the Velvet Revolutions and Poland. And I think that was still quite inspirational for people in Ukraine and seeing that it was possible to have a different direction in life than that that the Soviet center was dictating, I think was super important. But yeah, that's from the top of my sort of, yeah, that's what I can think of that I think it was just like probably Chernobyl was a big one that started the shift. And again, it's just a refresh of that feeling of injustice. We, we 
a lot of people, even the stories around Holodomor, the genocide that happened in Ukraine during Stalin, were passed down through generations and all the repression and all the killing of the dissidents and all this stuff in Ukraine. It's it, So Chernobyl wasn't like the first thing that happened that all of a sudden made people be like, oh, wow, Soviet Union isn't great. But I think it was just like the most, the closest one to, I think it was like a combination of things, right? It was the closest one to to a period where it was possible to, to choose a different path for Ukraine. So, yeah. Val, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think would be good for our listeners to hear from you? I think just reinforcing the quotes that Francis mentioned earlier from Zelensky, that it's just really important to not let Russia use their kind of occupation of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and others to really blackmail the world because the world still remembers that Chernobyl was a massive disaster. Ukraine still remembers. It's a transgenerational trauma that just passes down that makes us really aware of the potential consequences of what they can do there. So just remembering about that and making sure that we don't let them use that as blackmail is super important. So that would be my last message. Thank you so much for that, Val. It was really interesting to hear your thoughts on the Chernobyl disaster today, on, on, on the anniversary day today. Francis, can I go to you for some final diplomatic updates? Thanks, David. Well, breaking, and I haven't even had an opportunity to read the paragraph yet, so I'm just going to read it verbatim and respond to it. Chinese state media have begun to report on what President Xi said on the telephone call with President Zelensky. During the call, she told Zelensky that talks and negotiation were the only way out of the war. That's according to Chinese state media. As I say, the leader said on the issue of the Ukraine crisis, China has always stood on the side of peace and its core position is to promote peace talks. Now, Mr. Zelensky's spokesman has followed up and said on Facebook that the pair had an almost one hour long telephone conversation. So not a short one. I think the big takeaway from that has to be that obviously China is continuing to push the line here that negotiation is the way out of the war rather than Ukrainian military victory. Not a surprise, but nonetheless, something I'm sure that will anger some given, of course, what has what triggered the war in the first place and the egregious war crimes that have been committed by Russian soldiers in the country. So more on that as we have it, David. The rest of the diplomatic updates I wanted to go through are just relating to the domestic scene in Russia. A few interesting things. Putin has signed a decree to establish temporary control of the Ru- of Russian assets of two foreign energy firms a step that signalling Moscow could take similar action against other companies in the country. The decree notes the possibility of retaliation if Russian assets abroad were seized and said that Moscow would need to take urgent measures to unspecified actions in the US and other countries it said were unfriendly and contrary to international law. Now, this follows chief executives of Russian state-owned banks saying on Monday that Moscow would consider taking over foreign companies in Russia. And it seems this is a response to the conversations that are taking place at a very high level about what to do with those assets that were seized as part of Western sanctions. Some are saying that they should be used to rebuild Ukraine and should be seized permanently. And this is obviously part of the tete-la-tete between the two countries and, and what well, to say, Russia and the wider West with regards to what they will do with assets if this becomes a sort of seized assets war. 
And unfortunately, Russia seems to have moved first on this, but as I say, an important one. And then just turning to the Russian opposition, Navalny, of course, a very controversial figure amongst Ukrainians, but important as a sort of lightning rod for, for opposition in Russia, has said that he faces absurd accusations from investigators in a terrorism case, which is see him sentenced to an additional 30 years in prison. He's tweeted about this. They've put forward these accusations, according to which I face the 30 years. I insist that the attempt to close the process is an attempt not only to restrict me from familiarizing myself with the case, but an attempt to make it so that nobody finds out more about it. So yet a further example of Navalny being un by Russia and to make sure that he's out of the picture. Interestingly, in that vein, a popular former mayor and high-profile Kremlin critic called Yegevny Rosman has appeared in court over accusations of discrediting the Russian army over the war in Ukraine. He's 60 years old. He was the most prominent opposition mayor when he assumed office in Ekaterinburg in 2013. That's a name that may have resonance with some listeners. It was a, it's a very important economic centre, one of the host cities of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. God, doesn't that feel a long time ago? And uh, he, as I say, denounced Putin, said that he knows he could go to prison any time. That's according to AFP, the newswire. Yes, unsurprising, rather dispiriting picture of what's happening in Russia at the moment. Further evidence, if needed, that the clampdown continues, David. Dom, just one question to you. I'd be very curious to see, how would you sum up? You did a lot of reporting in the beginning of this podcast about some of the interviews and things we've learnt about the fighting in the East. How would you sum up? What do we think... We, we know now that we didn't before, or has it just reframed or better framed what's happening out there? Yeah, probably better framed is a more accurate phrase, I would suggest. So we were wondering a few weeks ago if the fighting, the continued fighting back move was eating into, through the muscle and into the bone of the Ukrainian military and whether or not they were having to start using reserves that they would prefer to keep rested or training for the upcoming counteroffensive. I think now, particularly with this uh, this article today, this interview with Alexander Sersky, I think it is clear that that it's not, and I don't think this is just information ops going on here. I think it's clear that the Ukraine are fighting; they are happy to take this fight. It's bad, and it's and it is it is costing them dear. But then the alternative would as well, and you'd end up in a worse strategic position. I think. So I think. I think what we're seeing here is reasoned argument or many reasoned arguments for continuing the fighting back move rather than just the the one about relative strengths and holding back the line because you don't want you wouldn't want the Russia to advance anywhere. So I, th- I think that this is much and they sound calmer. There's no there, there doesn't seem to be panic. We are coming out of winter. It wasn't the winter that Putin hoped for. It's still muddy. Still, yeah, as we saw, a lot of the roads are impassable but it won't be long until it starts drying up and i think that stat that uk defense intelligence stat about russian casualties down a third i think that speaks of a shift at the moment i'm not suggesting that the line will race back race east in back anytime soon but it just suggests that we are moving out of the winter period which was artillery and Wagner convict-led mass frontal assaults. I think we're moving into a different phase now, which is preparation for, on both sides, preparation for the counteroffensive, yeah, which may be months away, let's be honest. There's still a huge amount of training that needs to be done, I think. So we don't quite know what's going to happen in the immediate future, but I just feel like we are coming to the end of something, the end of the anticipated or the hoped-for offensives on Russia's behalf over over winter they've come to nothing they are inching forward in in back mood but i think we've got yet more evidence here that is a fight ukraine is prepared to have 
we were speaking earlier on about the institutional lying and the impact that can have within totalitarian regimes. And of course, it's worth saying that the death nail of the Soviet system was largely brought down by a similar problem. Of course, the famous bungled press conference by the Politburo member, was his name Gunter Shabosky? I'm sure listeners will tell me if I'm wrong. He intimated semi-intelligibly that trips abroad would be possible for every citizen starting right away and immediately. And of course, that was completely incorrect. And actually, part of the reason why he said that was, or the only reason he said that was he was asked a question by a Telegraph journalist. So there you go. The Telegraph brought down the Berlin Wall in part. But anyway, it's an interesting point, this, that he then, what happened is that this call wasn't rescinded due to the lack of trust within the party elite and the security apparatus, which prevented a retraction of that order and led to key Stasi officers throwing open the checkpoints rather than firing on the crowd. This thing can have absolutely fatal consequences, not only in tragic incidents like Chernobyl, but it can actually be the death knell, as I say, of the Soviet systems and totalitarian systems that resemble them. So I just thought that was an interesting historical parallel to make. Just one other small story that I wanted to mention, very grateful to a listener who sent this our way. It's from Denmark and six museum tanks have been dusted off in Denmark to play a role in the Danish-German donation of Leopard 1 tanks to Ukraine. So these combat vehicles of the 1A5 type have been were retired and in fate and were in a three view vehicle museums in the country but they've been lubricated and looked after by enthusiasts and shown to guests for many years but earlier in the year the tanks were drawn back and are now being used as a kind of refresher course for Danish soldiers who drove the Leopards tanks about 18 years ago and are now using them to teach Ukrainian soldiers how to use these tanks which of course are being donated. And it offers, I think, a living example of the importance of preserving history. One never knows how the past can be used to inform the present, which is why we should, of course, cherish our museums, archives, libraries, and and question the motives of those who seek to dismantle them, or worse, for their own agenda, to to simply save money. I don't think you could ever have predicted this, and yet we are where we are, and history is back in a big way. And so cherish your museums, folks. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Dom. Val, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? I think since today is such a big day for a lot of Ukrainians, it's just, as I said before in my last remark, as long as we don't let Russia get away with their nuclear threats and blackmailing again, I think we should be fine. It's just a big problem for Ukraine because it triggers a lot of emotions from the past. But I hope that me telling my story today and the story of my family also showed everyone why Ukrainians have been feeling this feeling of injustice for such a long time and this distrust towards whether that was Soviet or current Kremlin center in Moscow. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Val, for joining us. Val, just very quickly, would you like to plug the Ukrainian Spaces podcast? What You're on your next season, aren't you? What's happening there? Always, I always would like to plug my Ukrainian Spaces podcast that I co-host with Maxim Meristavi. And this season three, we're really focusing on kind of self-decolonization. So how have we all moved closer to understanding our identity and our Ukrainianness? And the newest episode that's coming out is with amazing Sasha from Ukrainian Institute in London. And we spoke a little bit about language and how Russian-speaking Ukrainians have moved away from their essentially mother tongue and made the political choice to speak Ukrainian. So tune in and yeah, you can find it on my page and follow Ukrainian spaces. 
Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.